Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And today's episode was inspired by the students at Prenatal Yoga Center in my postnatal and baby and me classes. I always check in with them and want to make sure that I'm covering topics that interest them. And for the last several months, the students were very enthusiastic about wanting and needing a podcast episode about weaning, weaning either from breastfeeding or bottle feeding. So I searched high and low. I did a lot of outreach and I finally found an amazing speaker to come on and share practical tips about weaning. And we talk about parent-led weaning and child-led weaning and what happens if you need to wean abruptly or what is the difference between a nursing strike and child-led weaning. It was a really great conversation. So let me tell you about my guest. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lily Hubshin Shahar. I hope I said that right, Lily. (laughs) Let me tell you a little bit about Lily. She's got a lot of initials after her name, so I'm going to go through them. So Dr. Lily Hubshman Shahar, DNP, comma, RN, comma, NNP, slash, BC, comma, IBCLC, is the VP of Clinical Services at Nest Collaborative. Lily has worked in maternal child health for the past 14 years as a neonatal nurse and NP, nurse practitioner, and IBLC. Sorry, I didn't say that correctly. IBCLC. And through her healthcare innovation work as a doctor of nursing practice, her personal mission is to be a leader in the cultural shift that empowers families to make healthy choices. It was a really great conversation. And if you are heading towards weaning or in the process of it or even thinking about it, I think this conversation will give you a lot of tools and support. Now, before we get to this conversation with Lily, let me just touch base about some things that we have going on at PYC. So each week we send out a newsletter giving you a little bit about an update of what's happening at our studio as well as the podcasts that are coming out and just little bits of tips and knowledge and support. So if you want to get on that list as well as grab a free downloadable, the downloadable is called Five Simple Solutions to the Most Common Pregnancy pains, head to our website and get on our list and grab that free downloadable. This will keep you in the know about all the classes that we have online, the classes we have in person, our on-demand classes we're adding to our on-demand library, which is so exciting. So you can stay in the know of all the PYC happenings. Now, if you are also into the idea of teaching pre or postnatal yoga, we've got that covered for you. We do four times a year, a prenatal, an 85 hour prenatal yoga teacher training. Twice a year, it's in person in New York City and twice a year, it's online. This time we actually have someone that will be tuning in from Australia. It's really so cool that we are 
able to support one another and teach one another from all over the world. I will say I'm very grateful for that new change that we've been able to add. So all of this also is on our website, prenatalyogacenter.com. And then last couple things, I just want to thank everyone for supporting us through all these years. So thank you for being a community member. And as I mentioned, this podcast is because the students in class told me what they wanted to hear. So honoring the fact that this podcast is for you, if there's a topic I haven't covered or maybe even a speaker that you think would be a really great match, let me know. You can always email me at deb at prenatalyogacenter.com. And you can also, if you are the person that you think should be the guest, we have a podcast application for for guests. So you can find that also on our website. All right. That is enough of me. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Lily. Hi, Lily. How are you? Hi, Deb. Good morning. Oh my gosh. Listen to both of us. You've got a cold. I've got a cold. All right, listeners, just have pity and don't be surprised if you hear me grabbing for tissues. So that we, we got that out of the way. I'm so excited to speak with you. I have to tell you, I've had so many students ask me to do a podcast about weaning, and it's something I dealt with with my kids. So I'm so glad that we're finally sitting down. So thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's jump in with, I'd love to learn a little bit about you and what led you to your work in lactation. Sure. Um, so I came to lactation and, and working with families by way of theater of all things. Yay, theater. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose there's a connection somewhere, but um, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I I was originally a a theater major, um, at Northwestern university and, you know, just had this like very analytical mind and found myself wanting something a little bit different, um, and ended up graduating from the school of education, social policy at Northwestern. And, and there they have a really wonderful program where you have to do a practicum. And in Evanston, they have, uh, a, an amazing adoption agency called The Cradle, where they still have a nursery on site. And I found myself working there in the office and also in the nursery and fell in love with working with new families. So I became um, a nurse uh, after I graduated from Northwestern, um, a nurse in the NICU. I always wanted to work with new families. Um, and then I became a neonatal nurse practitioner. And so working in the NICU is really what made me realize just how important breast milk is with our teeny tiniest little babies. Um, and I was able to watch parents bond with their babies through skin to skin, which is so important in breastfeeding. Um, so over time, I noticed that the parents really relied heavily on the nurses and the providers for breastfeeding support and that there wasn't a ton of lactation support. And I also realized that I had very little formal breastfeeding education with, you know, with all the letters after my name, I didn't seem to know enough to be able to support um, my families as much as I wanted to. So I became an IBCLC initially to um, support my NICU families, but then um, my lactation education and experience has evolved into things like a private practice. I was once upon a time a, a private practice IBCLC in New York, um, and then a doctorate in nursing, and now a, a love of empowering families to make healthy choices, um, which I currently do with Nest Collaborative, which is an amazing lactation telehealth organization. So. Wow. That is quite the journey. And it's so organic. Like when you were saying it, I'm like, I see how each piece led to the next. Wow. What a fantastic background. And what also amazing insight you have 
for the families that you work with. You're coming with many hats and many skills. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get into our conversation about weaning. So some of this is um, kind of practical and feel free to throw in your own antidotes, especially because you have been working sure. for so long. Is there a minimum age that is recommended to wean or is it whatever works for the baby and family? So that really depends on who you ask. So I'm okay. going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what the textbooks say first. I'm okay. going to tell you what the professionals say first. So the, the World Health Organization and the American Academy of Pediatrics and, and dozens of other professional health organizations, they recommend exclusive breastfeeding through six months, um, with continued breastfeeding with appropriate complementary foods through two years and beyond. And that did just recently change, at least with the American Academy of Pediatrics from one years, from one year to two years. So really there isn't a recommended age to wean. It's more, you know, keep, keep going going as, you know, as long as you possibly can, um, Breast milk has a dose-response relationship, and that means every drop counts. So from that baby that just gets, you know, that one drop of colostrum um, to the child that breastfeeds for, you know, two to seven years and beyond, um, it it uh, it all matters. And I think the reality check that we have to have is that only about 50 to 55% of infants in the United States are receiving any breast milk at all at six months, and only about 25% are receiving exclusively breast, uh, breast milk at six months. So we're, we're pretty far away away from, from the benchmark that's been set by the professional organizations. Um, there's really, it's more, it's, la- it's, it's less of a, a recommended weaning time and rather a lack um, of, of a recommendation. Um, and that's because of the ongoing health benefits that both the breastfeeding parent and the child receive throughout the breastfeeding journey. So we're talking about things like reductions in breast and ovarian cancer for the breastfeeding parent, um, reductions in a long, really long list of diseases that range from things like allergies to asthma to colds, diabetes and cancers in kids. So that's why those recommendations exist. But obviously every family has, di- has um, different circumstances that lead them to wean at different times. So you were saying that, I don't remember the statistic you just gave at, fifth, at six months. When are we seeing most people drop off from breastfeeding? Within, so the, the, um, CDC breastfeeding report card measures, um, ever breastfed, breastfed and exclusively breastfed at three months and breastfed and exclusively breastfed at six months. Um, so th- those are the metrics that we have and, uh-huh. and there's a big drop off between, um, between ever breastfed and three months. Um, but if you think about that, you know, the WHO, the AAP, ACOG, all of, you know, all the alphabet soup out there <laughs> is trying to say that a hundred percent of, of, um, children should be exclusively breastfed at six months. And in the U S only 25%, we have a very, um, a very long way to go to reach, uh, to reach those, um, those benchmarks and those health benefits that we know are there for, for all the families that are able to, um, to breastfeed at all. Um, and for as long as possible. That is a huge drop at six months. Wow. I was not expecting that. Um, this is slightly off topic, but I promise I'll get back to weeding, but do we have, is there documented reasons, uh, why it has dropped so significantly to 25% by six months? So there, so in 2011, um, Regina Benjamin, who was the U S surgeon general at the time put out, um, the call, 
uh, call of action to support breastfeeding. I might've gotten that title a little bit wrong, but it's, it's effectively the same as what I said. <laughs> um, and, and basically they put out a list of, um, of the barriers to breastfeeding. It ranges from things like, um, lack of access to breastfeeding support, which is the bridge that we're trying to, 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 um, which is the gap that we're trying to bridge at Nest, um, to things like actually health systems that are getting in the way of, um, of breastfeeding to things like, um, lack of, uh, support systems to lack of parental leave. And our, our cultural, our society in the United States is not set up to support breastfeeding families at all. So it is not surprising. I mean, kudos, kudos to anybody that makes it, you know, a day to six months to two, you know, to all of these moments. It is, it is a huge feat to attempt breastfeeding in the United States because we're just not set up to, um, to empower you and your family to do that. Yeah, I remember when I've been in this field for a little over 20 years and I remember when mm-hmm. breast pumps were finally honored by insurance. When I had mm-hmm. my kids, we had to pay out of pocket for breast pumps and I had one I kept at work, one at home and it got expensive and it's a commitment. Yes. Wow. All right. So we're slightly off topic because we're talking about <laughs> breastfeeding. Now we're going to talk about weaning. So let's <laughs> talk. I just am fascinated. Like when you talk about this stuff, my brain just explodes. I'm like, let's get here. going. You chose the wrong person to talk to because I can talk forever about this. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about parent-led and child-led weaning and the difference and then what to consider when deciding which approach to take. Sure. So, so they're, they're pretty clear in the titles, although they can be called different things. Parent-led weaning, um, allows the parent to decide when to introduce complementary foods and to stop breastfeeding altogether. Um, the process of weaning actually starts whenever you introduce a complementary food. So whether it's formula or when you introduce solids or when you stop breastfeeding, it's a, it's a, it's a process. Um, on the other hand, Child-led weaning follows the child's cues, and it typically occurs gradually. So child-led weaning rarely occurs before two years, um, and it could occur even as late as seven years. Um, in terms of what to consider when deciding what approach to take, I my approach to this is always you know, what is your, what does your gut tell you? What does your circumstance tell you? You know, the, the, the textbooks will tell you to try to, um, to air towards child-led weaning, to, gra- to gradual weaning. Um, but we have, but again, going back to what I was saying before about this, you know, our society is not set up to support breastfeeding parents. We have to be realistic about, about people's limitations as well. And so, um, I, I really try to ask the families that I work with to take an inventory of, of their situation, what matters most to them, what's going to make them feel comfortable looking back on this experience and choose a journey that, um, doesn't necessarily fit into one box or the other, but maybe is some combination of the two that, that meets their individual needs. Right. So you don't, you don't, it is not a black and white situation at all. It doesn't have to be. Absolutely. And so you said something that I hadn't thought about that when you introduce solids or formula, that is a type of weaning. Cause yes, I guess mm-hmm. I was thinking about with my own kids, like introducing solids did cut back from how much breastfeeding we did. And it wasn't in my brain, oh, we're starting to have, add any weeding. It was just for adding food. That was a really interesting perspective. So when can you tell if it's a difference between a nursing strike and child-led weeding? Because you also said that most kids, most babies or kids don't self-wean until like two years. And my daughter, like 14 months was like not having it. Like (laughs) I was trying and she's like, nope, we're all done now. Thank you. 
I mean, back to what I was saying about things being black and white, like obviously this is anthropological data is where the, is where the right. two to seven years becomes. It is not, it is not kids don't wean on their own before two years and they right. certainly could wean on their own after seven years. Um, so there, there are always outliers to these things. Um, but this is something that gets misinterpreted a lot. And I, and I, you know, feel sad that a lot of families don't get the support that they need from the community, from lactation support um, that allow them to distinguish between those two things and to continue breastfeeding if that's what if that's what they desire in their journey. So uh, how do you tell the difference? Um, nursing strikes are often sudden. A child, a child that weans um, will do so gradually. So set things like sudden changes can be really stressful uh, for families and they're often misinterpreted um, as, as child-led weaning, but they're, but they're really usually nursing strikes. Um, typically a nursing strike is going to be caused by like a developmental milestone, an illness, um, maybe another stressor, um, like a parent returning to work or teething or move, you know, if you happen to move. Um, so the, how you treat that, you have to treat the stressor, right? So, so we have to provide that, um, that child with, with a lot of comfort. It's, I'm an, I'm a nurse, I'm a nurse practitioner as well. We call it the supportive care. So we support, um, we support the family, we support the baby in, in what it is that they need to be able to overcome that stressor. Um, we, we, we can't force the baby to go back to the breast. We have to just kind of, um, give them that, that environmental support to get back to where they need to, um, to where they need to be. Um, and we want to make sure also that the breast remains, um, a positive and safe association during nursing strikes. Um, and that always that the baby remains fed and that we protect the milk supply. Those are, those are sort of the three, the three biggest things in a nursing strike. Um, the breast remains positive and safe. The baby remains fed and the milk supply is protected. Everything else we can, we can try to put back together. So positive and safe means don't try to shove your nipple in the baby's mouth. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> Listen, you know, the, it's loving boundaries, right? For all, for all of us <laughs> parents. It's, um, so we, you know, we want to encourage them, but we don't want to force them. We, I really am a big proponent of, of knowing your child very well, of, of doing everything that you possibly can to know their cues and, um, watching their reaction to, um, to being introduced to the breast, whether as an, whether as a newborn or as a later child during, um, an older child, um, during a nursing strike, um, can be really important. How long is it typical for a nursing strike to last? I mean, it could be days, it could be weeks. <laughs> it, de it oh, depends wow. on, yeah, it, de it depends on, um, you know, what's causing it, right? Because if they're continuing to have the stress that's causing the nursing strike, which could, by the way, be trying, the stress also could be exacerbated by trying to force a baby back to the breast. Um, it's, it, it could continue as long as whatever that stressor is. So teething, for example, can take, you know, a couple of days to a couple of weeks. If you, you know, I, I can only, you know, I can speak from experience. My, when we moved, um, my daughter didn't seem to adjust for many months, um, that she wasn't having a nursing strike. This was just, you know, general toddler, um, adjustment, but, uh, but yeah, it depends. It depends on the stressor and, and being supportive of, of the child in that stressor and providing them, you know, lots of comfort, um, should, should help while we protect, again, protect the milk supply, um, and make sure that that, that, that child is fed appropriately in the meantime. So for protect the milk supply event, was like, what does that mean? It means continue to pump so that the supply it doesn't could. go down. Okay. Yeah, it could. So, you know, hand expression, pumping, it could be breastfeeding. Get the milk and, out. <laughs> yeah. Get, yeah. Get, get the milk out so that it replicates what your normal routine 
would be. Um, you know, there are other things you can do in nursing strikes, like trying to feed um, feed babies when they're um, when they're more a little bit more tired um, before they get super hungry. You got to really hit that perfect zone between I'm not hungry at all and I'm too hungry to. Um, to uh, do anything challenging, um, nursing in a dark room with low stimulation, um, things that are comforting to a baby can can be helpful, um, but they may not be the entire solution. That makes a lot of sense. So if somebody is weaning before a year, are there any considerations that they should think about and what would they be? Yeah. So uh, breast milk or formula, if that's what you're using, should be an infant's um, primary source of nutrition for the entire first year of life. So at one year that, that primary source of nutrition transitions over to solid foods and breast milk or formula, if that's what you're using, becomes the complementary food at that stage. Um, so making sure that you're using a nutritionally appropriate liquid for whatever that baby's age is. So if they're under a year transitioning from breast milk over to, um, uh, donor breast milk or formula or an, an age appropriate formula, um, or after a year um, that the transition from breast milk uh, to another liquid would be over to water and milk with obviously solids. Um, yeah. So it's, it's about balancing the nutrition. Um, it's about balancing their nutrition depending on their age. That makes sense. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, talk me a little bit through what the whole process of weaning would look like for most folks. That's a big ask. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right. So if someone's like, all right, it's time for me to weed my baby. How, how would they go about that? We, you just mentioned there's a difference between under a year and substituting with formula and then over a year, but how does someone even start? Sure. So this goes back to something we were talking about um, previously. Ideally, weaning is gradual and it takes into account both the breastfeeding parents' needs and the infant's needs. Um, gradual weaning is more likely to go smoothly than abrupt weaning. Um, and if you're weaning an infant that's under a year of age, that's going to include, again, introduction of formula or frozen breast milk or maybe donor breast milk. It might include introducing a bottle, although there are other ways um to safely feed that are not breastfeeding, including cup or other feeding devices like a supplemental nursing system, um, a spoon, although that becomes a little bit uh, impractical at, um, at certain volumes. And then on the parent side, weaning is going to include um, dropping breastfeeds or pumps, depending on what you're doing. And then to limit um, pain or engorgement, ideally we spread these ex- these milk expressions out farther um, so that there's a larger gap in between them, but, but ideally equally. But in certain c- circumstances, it might be appropriate to just remove an expression session altogether for example, like at night. Okay. I remember having to, for kind of overwhelming reasons, I had to abruptly stop with my son and that really hurt. So what could somebody do if they're, if they did have to, if they didn't have the option to do it gradually, um, that it was quick, what, how does somebody deal with that and, and the pain of swollen breasts? Yeah. I mean, my, my first question would be, why are we weaning abruptly? Um, there are certainly reasons, um, that, that somebody would have to or would, would, would want to. Um, but the first question is, why are we doing it? Cause if we don't have to, we want to try to avoid it. Um, and, and sometimes it is recommended inappropriately. So that's the first question is why, why are we doing it? Um, and can we, can we set up a situation where you don't have to? Um, 
if they, if a parent decides that they need to wean immediately and the benefits um, are worth the possible risks, I would suggest expressing just enough milk um, for comfort. So if your breasts are getting um, engorged and, uh, and um, uncomfortable, just express enough that that discomfort um, is not there. And over time, your body will downregulate. Um, Usually after your placenta is delivered, your, your breast milk is produced based on supply and demand. And so in more, in most cases, the more you tell your breast that there is a demand for milk, the more they'll produce. So if you just express enough milk to remove, to improve the pain, um, that'll allow your body to continue to downregulate. Swelling is a little bit of a, of a, of a different situation. It's usually related to inflammation or illness or intravenous fluids. Um, but, um, pain and engorgement certainly can, can be accompanied by abrupt weaning, um, I was told by the IBCLC I was working with to try cabbage leaves and it surprisingly worked. So that, that, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, cabbage leaves are, um, are recommended. Why? <laughs> you know, there's a, there's an interesting thing that happens. There's, there's, when you look at the research, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to get into my academic world for all a right, second. I've already, <laughs> <laughs> if you look at medical research and health research, there's, less research about women's health. There's less research yes. about pediatric health. And then you get into this weird little corner where those things align like pregnancy and breastfeeding. And you get into a situation where there's really often not a lot of research um, and sometimes not a lot of good research. So uh, the reason that I'm saying that is that some of, some of these things, we just don't have enough research to confidently uh, you know, recommend based on the evidence. That said, if you think about the shape of a cabbage leaf and what you can do with a cabbage leaf, it it may help to reduce inflammation because you typically put it in the fridge and it's the shape of your breast. And so it's going to be cold and, you know, up against your breast. It's effectively sort of like a little ice pack. Nature's, nature's hack for some of the things that you might be able to find on the market, um, whether or not the cabbage itself, um, aside from the shape and the fact that it's been in your fridge is helping is not well established. Yeah, it worked. It worked. I put it yeah. in my bra. It felt great. And it really, really helped. And yeah. I, again, I didn't, I never knew the science and I'm like, we're going to go with it. Okay. Well, and the, and the reality also is that because, because we have this huge hole in our science, just because something works anecdotally or just because we don't have the research to support it doesn't mean it doesn't work anecdotally for people. Yeah. Um, like yourself. Yeah. So if someone decides to wean, but the child is not really keen on that and wants to breastfeed, what should you do about that? Um, that that's a really difficult situation. Um, that's a really difficult situation emotionally. <laughs> it's a very stressful situation. Um, the parent really has two choices. So depending on the reason that they decided to wean in the first place, they could go back to breastfeeding. Uh, breastfeeding isn't all or nothing. They can make a decision that works for both the adult and the baby. Um, or if the parent decides, um, or if the parent does decide to continue um, not to breastfeed, the options are really dependent on the baby's age. Um, so, or I suppose it could be an older child as well. Um, in all children, really the closeness, the smell, the skin to skin time, um, the bonding associated with breastfeeding should be continued. And you can bottle feed while skin to skin. You can cup feed. Um, you can nuzzle against the breast. You can snuggle your baby. You can still provide some of that closeness without providing the the, the nutrition directly from the breast. Um, you can also provide, you know, responsive emotional support. So making sure that you're addressing, addressing their needs. If they're, you know, 
really having a difficult time with um, with not having that closeness anymore. It can be a really difficult adjustment for kids. Um, and then in younger babies, they might continue to root or turn, or which is, you know, turning their, their mouth towards your breast. And the recommendation is the same. Keep that closeness. Keep, you can keep um, having your experience look similar to breastfeeding without the direct, uh, you know, milk transfer from breast to mouth. So would you suggest like still do skin to skin while maybe with a bottle? Sure. Absolutely. You know, people don't think about it because, you know, when we, when we think about sort of Hollywood bottle feeding, it's, you know, bottle tipped up, person closed, um, you know, baby, baby in a particular position. But the reality is you, you can do, um, you can have an experience that approximates breastfeeding while bottle feeding. You can still have that closeness. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the idea of just that still having that closeness that just because you take the source away as the breast doesn't mean right. that you can't continue that bond and the emotional connection. Right. So again, I'm, I'm going back to some of the things I experienced as well as what my students and I have been talking about. And one thing that was a common denominator is the, the, the destruction of nighttime routine. So I used to nurse my son at night. He was 18 months when I, when I weaned him and that was part of our, I didn't feed that much at that time, but it was part of our, our routine is, you know, a final breastfeeding session before he went to bed. And by taking that out, it feels like it, it felt like it destroyed the whole nighttime routine. So any suggestions for that? Yeah. So kids, especially toddlers are super oriented towards routine. I have a two and a half year old. I deal with this every day. <laughs> um, you can try to slowly replace breastfeeding with another activity that provides the same closeness. Um, it's also a situation in which gradual weaning is really, really helpful. Um, cutting out the nighttime breastfeed every once in a while and then more consistently than only on demand and then all together and then redirecting um, can be really helpful. I can tell you that um, that this is this is actually the technique that I used with my daughter when we weaned um, that we just sort of you know slowly trickled out so that it wasn't um, it wasn't as noticeable to her um, as it would have been if we just said okay we're going to go cold turkey you're not going to breastfeed tonight which is which is also it's important to say as well some kids will not react at all to cold turkey weaning at night um, and so it really, again, this is another situation where knowing your baby, you're knowing your child very, very well, um, and, and testing the waters a little bit will help you to understand what works best for your family. Yeah, that's wonderful. So we talked a little bit about kind of the emotional part of if a child doesn't want to breastfeed, but can you talk a little bit about for the parents too? Because I know when my daughter was refusing at 14 months, which I thought was, I'm like, all right, I guess that's just what it is. It was sad. It felt a little like it was my last child and I wanted to go longer. And it felt very emotional. And that's something that also has come up with my students in postnatal where some of them know they want to wean and yet it's still really emotionally hard. So what's something that we should consider about that and how to support both parent and child? Yeah. Yeah. And this is a, this is, this is where you'll hear a little bit more about my story because this is a very you know personal question for me. It, there, there's an inherent loss associated with weaning. There just, there just is. Um, and for a parent that, that carried that child and, and breastfed full weaning is really the first time that that child can survive without the parent nourishing the child from the parent's body. Um, I know for me that, that that was huge. I suddenly felt this disconnect from my child that I hadn't felt, you know, 
since she was conceived. Um, it's also really important to remember that there is, there is a shift in hormones when you're weaning and that that can, that can affect um, your emotional health as well. Um, for me, weaning was really, really emotional. Um, when I stopped, I hated pumping. Um, there, my, my daughter was a preemie and we triple fed for a long, we have a, you know, all the things to pull out your textbook. We had all the things. Um, and when I stopped pumping as much as I hated pumping, I cried. <laughs> and then when I stopped directly breastfeeding, um, I was incredibly emotional and then I had frozen breast milk. Um, and when I gave my daughter her last bag of frozen breast milk, I was very emotional as well. Um, it's been over a year since I weaned my daughter, um, and about six months since I gave her her last bag of frozen breast milk. And I, um, I really truly feel that I'm still grieving the loss of that relationship. Um, and so to, you know, to bring it back to the, to the larger population, there's a loss and we have to remember to respect and, to respect that loss and to provide, provide people the space to feel that loss and support them in that loss. Um, and hopefully, you know, my role and, and our role as lactation consultants is to provide the family with not only the nutritional benefits of breastfeeding, but also for them to, to allow them to be able to look back on their experience and um, feel satisfied, feel fulfilled. Yeah. Um, and uh, feel that connection that, that they got, whether they breastfed their baby one time or they breastfed the, that baby for years. Yeah, that it is a loss. I mean, if, if I just remember, I'm still sad about it. It's been, my daughter's yeah. eight. And I still think about, I'm, there was tearful moments and I just, it was like almost saying goodbye to something that I didn't want to. It was, right. and I feel for all the parents that, I see them struggling in class with that. It makes me so sad. So is there anything else that I haven't asked about weaning that you're like, okay, we got to touch base on, on whatever. I don't, I don't, well, that's a dangerous question to ask me because I can talk <laughs> about this for, um, forever. No, I don't think so. I, I think I we have some really good that. practical tools. That's really Yeah. Great. I mean, I think, you know, the, my approach in, in lactation consulting really is very, um, is very individualized. Um, that's what it was in my private practice. That's how we practice um, at Nest Collaborative. And, you know, rem just remembering that every family is different. Every family's um, context is different. Every family's experience is different. Their goals are different. Um, it, 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 and remembering that, you know, they they exist within the, the entire puzzle, that entire puzzle. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I wish to all of your to all of your listeners that they find, you know, that support that, that can be difficult to find. Um, I mean, that's because, a whole other conversation about the yeah. support. And that could be a reason, as you already touched on, like why people at 25% of the population at six months, it's really the support. So we're going to take one more break. When we come back, if you can think, you know, you've got, again, a lot of background as well as personal background to pull from. So I'm just going to give you this idea to think about what is one final tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents. Think about that. We'll be right back. Okay, so I'm very curious which hat you're going to put on to, <laughs> to answer this question because you got a lot. Well, I I think I don't think I have to put on different hats. I think that I can be both. I think I can be the mama and the lactation consultant and the doctor and you know all these. Oh, things you know, I'm sure you know and, the story. Yeah. I think it's called like caps for sale, where yep, the yep, monkeys pull the caps the and you're wearing like 30 hats at a time. All right, so there yeah. we go. Put them all yeah. on. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this is this is what 
you know, I tell, I tell my sister, this is what I tell my clients. This is what I tell my friends. It's trust, trust your gut. You know, your parent gut is something that develops over time. And so surround yourself with people and sources that you trust. Don't be afraid to ask questions while you're learning. You're going to get to the place where you can trust your gut and, you know, you've got this. Don't let anybody, don't let anybody steal your confidence. Don't let anybody steal your joy. I like that. Oh, yes. That's wonderful. So where can people find your work? Uh, mostly Nest Collaborative now. So I, um, I help to lead the team. I'm the, the VP of clinical services over there. And so, um, we're a virtual lactation consulting pra- practice and we, um, are a really diverse team of IBCLCs and we provide care in over 10 languages, all 50 states. Um, we see patients prenatally and postpartum when you have an issue and when you don't just to get you ready for what's coming next. Um, we have same day appointments. We accept all insurances and Medicaid. And so, um, it's a very unique place where, where, um, when I say look for the support that you, um, that you need and that you deserve, that can be found at Nest. It really so, can. I, when I looked into your, into your organization, I was so impressed with how accessible you are. Yeah. Yeah. We are, we are really trying to bridge that gap in access to care. And, um, it, it's extremely important to us that everybody, we, first of all, we feel that everybody needs a lactation consultant and that everybody that needs one has access to one. Um, and so we're there, we're there for that. I do provide some, some, uh, support, but I also help to lead the team. And I have a really incredibly talented, um, and compassionate team, um, to rely on in situations where I can't provide that support myself. Oh, well, thank you so much for this conversation. You really gave so much to those that need this support. So thanks for your time. I know we're both kind of squishing this in. I think you have to take your daughter to school. My daughter's homesick. So we got a lot done in a short period of time. So thank you so much. Thank you, Deb. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.